In this episode of 92i Talks, Instagram co-founder Mike Krieger sits down with The New Yorker's Nick Thompson to discuss how a spark of genius became a product used by hundreds of millions. The conversation was recorded on March 11th, 2016, in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. It is a pleasure for me to be here, and it is even more of a pleasure for me to welcome um, the man who will be interrogating tonight. He doesn't have a very long biography because um, he went to college and then he worked for Mebo for a year. But because he's a genius, um, he then founded Instagram, which I'm sure many of you use and love, perhaps all of you use and love. So I'd like to welcome Mike Krieger. He is the uh, co-founder of Instagram. And it has just been his birthday, so you can all uh, wish him a happy, I believe, 30th birthday. He posted it on Instagram. He just returned from Oaxaca, and he has also posted some photographs of some beautiful mamelas, I believe, which look delicious. So, Mike Krieger, uh, delighted to have you here. Thanks, good to be here. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right, so let's, um, let's start by talking a little bit about the beginning. So you started Instagram about six years ago, a little less than six years ago, and that was a propitious time for photographs. It was iPhone 4, storage space increasing, everybody has a camera on their phone. So everybody in the world was launching a photo app at that time. And somehow, yours became the one used by 400 million people. So tell me why Instagram made it and those 936 other photo startups all failed. That's a really good question. I think about this a lot, actually. And there's always the aspect of luck. So let's remove that factor, because I think there's always a little bit of that. So what did we do right? Um, boring answer. Did that right, it says luck. It's good timing. <laughs> um, I think part of it was that it wasn't the first product we had built. So all of Instagram was built on top of the ashes of this other thing that we were working on called Bourbon. And if it was 2009, 2010, if you remember the game Mafia Wars, you could play it on Facebook. You could like have like your own bar, and I actually never played it because I never really played Facebook games, but there was this thing called Mafia Wars, and my co-founder, Kevin, uh, quit his job to basically make a Mafia Wars in the real world. In retrospect, not a great idea, but that's like where, you know, these things start often with the totally <laughs> wrong idea. And, uh, but what we did is that we were like, okay, we're gonna have bars, and we're gonna have like, okay, actually, first we just need to build a place database so that you can like know where you are, and like people can own bars. If you remember like Foursquare, that kind of like mechanic of being the owner of a place. So we built this like super convoluted thing that nobody was using, except we added a feature to it, which was you could post photos and videos from like your speakeasy, aka like the restaurant you were at or the park you were at, and it turns out people really loved just that piece. So nobody really uses that game part of it. And the community we had, which was tiny, it was 1,000 people, really took to the photo aspect of it. And we learned a bunch, actually. And I think, more directly answering your question, I think the reason it worked is that we knew what problems we needed to solve. And even today, like whenever we set out to build anything, the thing we always start with is like, what problem are we solving? Because there's so much technology out there that you could you know, invent things that might not solve anything. So in this case, it was, it was even though iPhones were getting more popular, the state of the art was an iPhone 3G, which probably many of you had. At the time, it was like, this thing takes pretty good photos. If you look back at the time, they were awful, right? It looks like digital soup, but now they're really sharp. So we knew they, people wanted to make their photos look good. So that was one insight that came from Bourbon, is that the people who were using these editing apps outside of Bourbon and sharing their photos to Bourbon were the ones that would share the most photos. We're like, insight one, hey, people don't think their photos look that great. If you help them make them look great, they'll want to share more. Two was that a lot of these things were really slow. So there was this emergence of photo apps at the time. And nowadays, San Francisco spoils you. We're, we're based in San Francisco because the internet's actually pretty fast there. You go out there and at t is decent, which wasn't the case in 2009, 2010. Basically, people bought iPhones way faster than at t and the other networks could 
like physically yeah. build infrastructure. Um, it's hard enough to build anything in San Francisco. Imagine adding radio towers to it. So it was basically like super slow, but which was helpful for us because it meant that we had to focus on performance from day one. So what we tried to build was something that was super easy to use, super fast. So when you uploaded, it actually went through. I used to go to concerts more often now that I'm like, you know, less cool, I guess. I don't go as often, but, uh, and I would always see Still people. very cool. I'd be, see people in the second row or the first row always trying to like post their photos of these concerts. And because the upload process was so slow, it would ruin their enjoyment of the actual moment. So we were trying to build something that like made your content look great and let you get in and out of the moment really quickly because ultimately like life is what you should be experiencing, not like a little progress bar. Um, and I think, and then we just focused a ton on those really core things and just like, cut everything else out. We would start every week with a list of what we were working on that week. And this was just still me and Kevin. And the list of what we were working on versus the list of what we had decided not to work on, like one was tiny in comparison to the other one. And that is that sort of the fundamental idea of Instagram? I mean, even now, there's like nothing inside of Instagram. You know, there are five buttons and a couple of tabs and a little settings thing. There's so few things you can do in it versus other products, like I can do 26 billion things in Microsoft Excel and I can do three things in Instagram. And I can't even use the darn thing on my desktop or I can barely use it on my desktop. Has that kind of been one of the principles from the beginning? Yeah, I like to say like if we ever have a hamburger button, the hamburger button you'll see in some apps is that little three line thing. I guess it looks like a hamburger to some people that you tap in and like the whole app slides over and there's like 50 options listed. If we ever have that, we've blown it. Like it means that we've like, <laughs> we've tried to do way too much because it means that like, it's, there's something really beautiful. I like to, so now that we've hired and grown our team, I like to bring people along and I show people a screenshot of Instagram the day it hit the store, which is October 2010. And I'm like, what do you notice about it? And first of all, they're like, wow, it was really ugly. And like our visual design has gotten a lot more refined over time. But the other thing they notice, like the fundamental building blocks haven't really changed. There's a feed of stuff that comes from the people that you follow that you're excited to see. There's some exploration ability. Back then it was called popular. Now we have way more of a rich search and explore thing. And then there's a way of getting to what people are sharing with you. And then there's a way of actually posting to Instagram. And we've preferred making each of those way better versus like going super wide and trying to make this like, like huge convoluted thing. All right, let's talk about the hamburger for a second because it, it hits close to home. So I run a website and you have navigation and basically everybody wants their section of the site put into the hamburger. And it's a lot easier to say yes than it is to say no because all you have to do is put a little line in the hamburger and the hamburger extends and you get a bigger and bigger and bigger hamburger or we're stretching the metaphor. How did you say no to all of these things? At first it was easy because when it's just you and your co-founder, you can kind of come to a shared understanding of what's important versus not. It gets way harder when you have, we're now 160 engineers. We Which were is tiny for a company with 400 million users for the record. It feels huge because we were six engineers three years ago, so we've grown astronomically, but it's also tiny compared to some other companies. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot harder when you're like, like brand new engineer who's been there for three months, comes up to you after hackathon and she's like, look, I came up with this awesome idea. Let's ship this. And you're like, ah, if I said yes to all of these things, we would have the hamburger problem. So. Um, the way we try to balance it, I'm not sure we always get it right, but the way we try to balance it is if there are things that seem promising, but we're not quite sure are gonna belong within the main Instagram app is we'll build them as separate things. So we have a few of these, we have hyperlapse, layout, and boomerang, and they're basically different ways of creating content that don't 
like we're not sure belong inside Instagram. And then over time, if we see them really take off, we can borrow some of those things and bring them back in. So letting you kind of have that flexibility of running with your own app, A, people like that, so the engineers get happy again. Uh, but two, it means we can learn quickly. And if in the end people love it, that's an opportunity to build it in or build really good connections between like main Instagram and site app. app. Uh, without having just like to tack on more and more of those things. But it's, a, it's an interesting conflict at the company during this period as you grow very quickly because you're not letting engineers do a lot of what they do or you're squashing their projects. So Instagram kind of had a reputation, right, for being a place that engineers would come and then engineers would leave, right? Aren't there core threads about that? There's, I mean, I think one of the hard transitions is people join, like what I've learned is people join your company expecting different things in different times. And the people who join when you are three or four or five engineers, and they're willing to not sleep very much. They're willing to take the crazy bet, but they're also usually the kind of person that a year or two later, you know where most of them left is to do their own company. And like, mm -hmm. I never like when people leave Instagram to like go somewhere else, but like if they're going to leave, the reason that I'm most content with is the one where they're, hey, I'm gonna start something new, just because it probably meant we hired somebody really entrepreneurial and eventually they get to the point where they have seen how we do it, have learned what we did right and probably what we did wrong and they wanna do something else as well. So that's that's the balance. And I think nowadays, now that we're bigger, your 150th engineer is unlikely, and I say engineer, but really it's like engineer, product designer, et cetera. It's probably not the person who's like, next year gonna start a company and you just kind of change and it shifts a little bit as you grow. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about the international growth of Instagram, which happened very quickly. And it's something that fascinates me because for a lot of products, international growth is hard because you know, for Twitter, the tweets are in English, so it's hard to read in another country. Photography is like a universal language. So I would assume that Instagram grew much more quickly international than other competitive social networks. Um, tell me about that. This is like something we saw really quickly. And actually our first non like kind of core, the, I'd say the first user who we didn't know was German. And the reason was, you know, we were we were so hard working on like V1 that we were going to launch the store um, that we were like we were ready to launch. We had set a press embargo, so we were like, nobody write a story before it was like 8 a.m. Pacific or something. Huh. But this is getting technical. But like when you launch a new app to the Apple Store, it can take like four or five hours before it's out to enough people. Uh, and so we're like, we're going to hit the button at midnight because all of the U.S. is going to be asleep. It's fine. And then by 9 a.m., it's going to all be up. We forgot because we were so busy and kind of dumb, I guess, that like there's the whole world out there. So we hit the button at midnight and by 12.01, we had our very first Instagram user in Germany. And we started <laughs> seeing these signups come in with like at gmx.de or something.fr. And then we'd see Japanese email. So we didn't really sleep even the first night that we launched. That was supposed to be our like pre-launch rest. But um, very early, I think people were excited because you could follow people without knowing what language they were speaking. The first one, first person I really connected with, his name was Koji, um, and he is in Japan. And basically, he was sharing just his life. And what was crazy was like, you know, I got in touch with him mostly because he was an early adopter and good advice. He helped us with our first Japanese translation of the app. Um, and then um, the natural disasters happened in Japan. It was like, I think, March of the following year. And all of a sudden, my experience totally changed because I knew him just as like a long distance friend. And then he was taking photos of his house that had been turned totally upside down and talking about how it's been affecting all his so friends. So this, this gets to an important thing I really want to understand. When did you realize that you had built something that actually mattered in a deep way to the world, right? It wasn't just, oh, we got a cool project. We're engineers. We're young. We're figuring this out. Let's build something fun. But actually, wait, people are using this 
to understand natural disasters. I think it was actually that moment. So I remember it really clearly, and it was really well timed for this because we're what, early March? It was early March then, and I believe it was 2011, probably. And um, I was at South by Southwest, which is also going on now. And I remember uh, Kevin was like, Mike, open the popular page. So at the time, the popular page, it's the second tab in the app, was just a global view as to what the most popular things on Instagram were was right now. Today, it's more personalized than that. But at the time, it was like, everybody had one global view. And they were all like custom-made images that all said, pray for Japan, or thinking of Japan, and sending strength to Japan. And that was the moment where I was like, not only do we have a growing community, we had over a million people on Instagram at the time, there's actually a way in which they're connecting to people from a totally different country and like offering support. And you would see the comments on those photos be a mix of Japanese and English and Italian and Spanish. Um, so that was the, whoa, mm -hmm. this is actually not just international, but kind of crossing borders in an interesting but did, way. So that must have been inspiring and exciting. Yeah. But did it also kind of freak you out a little bit about the responsibility you have? Because what if somebody posts false information as they did, for example, during Hurricane Sandy? Suddenly you have this powerful platform that's spreading, you know, lies about something that's going on. I think the scariest, the like, you know, sort of sense of responsibility came less from misinformation and for me more, uh, it gave the meaning, it gave meaning to what was the reality for those few years, which was the site was growing really quickly. I had never built any kind of infrastructure and basically my entire life was keeping the site up and yeah. building infrastructure and having it not just be what at the time was the popular media perception of Instagram, which was, oh, it's just hipsters taking photos with filters. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, once we were down for a whole day because a huge storm came through Virginia and knocked out our data center that was hosted on Amazon's cloud, and uh, the image that went around was like this hipster that's like, Instagram is down, just describe your lunch to me. You know, like that kind <laughs> of like, uh, and it's, it's a really good meme image. And like, <laughs> but, but underneath that, I also knew that there was actually a meaning behind it, which was like meaning, meaning behind beyond just the like snapping photos of lunch, but it was people really connecting and getting to know each other. And you know, throughout the years, we, we have a team called it a community team, which basically just focuses on interacting with our, our community and hearing their stories and talking to them about what they would like to see differently. And then you, the amount of stories you hear around people getting married because they met and got started using Instagram direct and then they proposed and then they went and met each other for real for the first time. And like that, I mean, sounds pretty crazy, but like you see those kinds of stories over time. And I think that was probably the biggest thing that kept me going when it was like, you know, 4 a.m. and you've been up for a day and a half and you're just like trying to get this thing back up because it actually matters to people. And the story of most Silicon Valley companies is they hire engineers and more engineers and more engineers and more engineers and more engineers. When did you start hiring lawyers in this community group and people who understand Japanese foreign policy who can help you sort through whether the image is correct or not? That's a good question. The, the community group was really fast, actually. Like our... Um, very first hire should have been an engineer in retrospect <laughs> to help me scale the website, but instead it was a community manager um, who we hired from Portland. Portland is like the world's greatest origin of community managers. They're all there. That's uh, something about the the I guess their general sense of life is, is really well suited just interacting with a bunch of strangers on the internet. Um, and he joined, and it was great because that meant that from day one we were kind of putting a stake in the ground and saying interacting with people who are using the product is as important as working on any amount of features. So that's the community side, but that's the fun part. Lawyers came way later. So um, once we joined Facebook, so September 2012, what was really interesting, you know, like there was a lot I expected and didn't expect from that acquisition. One of the things I hadn't really thought through or really thought much about was that uh, all of a sudden in the 
eyes of, say, law enforcement or policymakers, we were equivalent. But Facebook had been doing that for like eight years and they had like policy teams and they thought these things through and they had case studies, et cetera. So we had to grow up really quickly. Um, I remember the first three months of being at Facebook, um, the things that we were working on, you know, like there was a commentary internal like, has Instagram stopped innovating now that we're now that they're part of Facebook? And it was like, no, it's just that we had to build a subpoena tool and a law enforcement report tool and like basically catch up to years of like being a adult, an adult, not adult in the like porn sense, but like adult in the like grown up and mature uh, site. I like that you describe Facebook as like the mature adult. Facebook was six years old yeah, when exactly. they acquired you. It's this sort of hilarious thing about Silicon Valley. Tell me about, I want to talk through some of the, some of the complex issues you must have dealt with. When did you first start having to worry about copyright? Informally pretty early, and that's because um, a lot of our early community um, I think joined because they were excited that they had a way of sharing their aesthetic sense with the world. Mm -hmm. um, and they were interested in saying like, hey, like this is almost my portfolio. And they might not have been professional photographers, but they had some amount of pride, I guess, or yeah. sense of ownership. So um, pretty early we would, would get into tips really like with two people and one would write in like, hey, this person's stealing my photographs. Um, and one thing about Instagram is like, we don't own the copyright, all of the people who post the photos you know, on the copyright. Um, but I remember like a year in, this was pre-joining Facebook, but we had to like study up with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and basically mm -hmm. make sure that we were actually following all that. And you, know, you have to be reachable. And then like if there's a complaint, you take it down and there's a counter notice. And again, like these things are, they're important to get right, but they're also when you're a small team can feel like, man, like this is like, this is standing in the way of us getting like the product work done. Mm -hmm. um, and actually what's interesting is we would see other, like startups that were kind of in, in the same space as ours, but weren't as large and hadn't hit these issues, be able to iterate sometimes more quickly in those days because they just weren't dealing with some of these uh, policy things. My favorite thing about copyright is that the big Instagram copyright scandal right now is everybody's upset at Britney Spears taking in sort of a small photographer's photo, which is like the reverse of all the copyright fights of, right. the, <laughs> like of the 90s, where it was the big artists who were upset at everybody taking their images. Yeah. Tell me about um, privacy. That must have been a huge thing that came up, people not wanting to be in an Instagram photograph. Yeah, or people, the thing we weren't sure about when we, like Instagram seems, I, th I think it seems, not, if not necessarily obvious, but like pretty obviously a good idea. Like, hey, a network where people can express themselves visually. It doesn't seem crazy. Um, the thing I like to go back to in 2009, 2010 is show the app store charts, which is nowadays, if you go there, it's like YouTube and Instagram and Snapchat and uh, other networks that are about sharing your life visually. Yeah. Back then it was like Photoshop and the splice video editor and a bunch of things that were way more like private. They were like, these are my, this is my stuff. If I'm gonna share it, maybe I'll share it on Facebook with my friends. Um, so one exercise Kevin and I did when we were trying to figure out where to take bourbon was we, we would take a sentence and then flip assumptions. So one of them was people wanna share photos privately with their friends and we're like, Right, what if people want to share their photos publicly with strangers on the internet, which at the time was kind of scary. And we built Instagram like V1 or V0.9 because we hadn't launched yet. And then we turned to each other and we said like, do we think our significant others are going to use this product? And we're like, they won't use it unless there's a private option so that you can uh, like approve who can see your photos or not. And what's funny is that to this day, both of our significant others who are now both of our wives, uh, 
don't have a private account. So we were totally wrong on that assumption. But I, I do think having that private but account option was important. Do you, do you have a private account? I also have a private account. So uh, one of the things we added recently was the ability to switch accounts quickly. And so I have my like, you know, over time, because being one of the co-founders, you end up getting like followed by a bunch of people that are just interested in what the co-founders are up to. And sometimes you want to share things that are like more, uh, you know, kind of took a photo on the subway that was like awful. And that goes to my like private, less, less followed account. So some people do that where they end up having both. I mean, privacy is in the news today. There are new FCC regulations for IS, uh, ISP privacy. Um, how do you think the norms of privacy have changed since you started it? What have you noticed in what people are willing to share, how they feel about sharing? I think this is most interesting within teens. And I think there's this misconception that people are like, oh, teens don't like understand privacy. And I think what I've learned over time is that they really do understand privacy and they think a lot about it. They just have like a really deep grasp of everything. So they've kind of created a mental model of like, this is a stuff that is uh, cool to go on Instagram that like, you know, maybe it's their public account and their parents are on and then they understand that. And this is the stuff that goes on their private account. This is the stuff that goes to Facebook just to these friends. So like, um, it's, they are comfortable sharing, but I think they're comfortable sharing because they've begun to understand what these different like modalities of sharing are. So I think that's changed. Um, and how have you yeah. changed the product to sort of deal with changing expectations of privacy or to fix problems you saw in the initial versions? One of the things was just having the private experience well thought through. This is like a lesson in using your product the way a lot of the people who use your product use your product. It sounds really obvious, but it's, it's not like, for a long time, the only account I had was my public account, and same with Kevin. And so we were living the public account life. And most of the team was that way too, because we hired a bunch of people that were really passionate about the like public almost showing off side of Instagram. And we're like, one day we're like, we should sign up and be have a private account just to see what that's like. And like the first day we had like we had like tasked out like twelve or fifteen different improvements to the product that we had just been blind to. So one of the ways is just making that whole experience better, like being able to prove things in ma in mass or be able to reject people or try to understand who's trying to follow you and you're not just going off their name, you're like going off some social context as well. Um, so that's been one aspect of things. But throughout, like we're always really conscious of how people want to express themselves and making sure that it's clear to them, like, all right, this is a public account, mm -hmm. this is a private account. When we launched, we have Instagram Direct now where you can take, like, if I, I can take your photo and share it with my wife, but only if it's public or if we both follow you. You can't, like, take private content and then, like, reshare it publicly. And, I mean, those private, pri the private option definitely complicates everything we do, but I think it's ultimately worth it to give people that choice. And is there a at all a different philosophy than there is with Facebook. I often find on Facebook that I'll share something privately and then like Facebook will publish my year in review and suddenly like this picture of my child that I didn't want is now, you know, blasted out to everybody. Like Facebook has a philosophy that people will share 10 times as much whatever it is every year. And it just they the product sort of is built that way. Do you have a different understanding from Facebook? The one major difference that we've tried to stick with and I think it's just because of it's how people think of Instagram is like you can kind of think of two different privacy models. One is per object privacy, so this photo goes to yeah. my friends and this area, and then there's like per account privacy. And we've just opted for the latter. We all, like, simplicity is one of our guiding principles, and that right. was just an option that we made. Like, the Facebook options are actually a lot more powerful in a way, but we were like, while they're powerful, we wanted the simplicity of like, you know what, like, if you have a private account, that's it. Yeah. And if you have a public account, that's it. You can't make one of your photos private. And the avenue to having multiples is having multiple accounts, which creates other problems. But that's been one difference in that we've just tried, we've just kept the option very simple. So this actually gets to something else I've been wondering about as, as you talked and as I read more about this, which is that you and Facebook have, I mean, Facebook 
great product. I'm sure everybody here uses Facebook. Hugely important. You know, New Yorker loves it. Please keep your algorithm so that it advantages our stories. Um, but it's got a totally different philosophy on how things are built. Right? They will build anything. They'll go and they'll test it with 1% of their users. There's 96 different Facebook products that you can see on the front page, 16 of which will be shut down next week. It's a constant, you know, make things, break things, build things fast, right? ship before it's ready. You guys have a very different philosophy. I'm not saying one is better, one is worse, but you're owned by Facebook. So is there ever a culture clash? It mostly comes when people transfer over and you know they'll join the team. Because you can imagine, a lot of the growth, we're about 300 people overall at the company. And again, we were like 13 three years ago. You don't just find <laughs> 290 of them like at your doorstep. A lot of them were transfers from Facebook. And one of the things that was interesting when people would come over is that they would be like, whoa, like, I thought I could just like run this 1% experiment and see what I would learn. And instead of like, no, like Kevin and I, I think are trying to be really intentional about what goes in. And we like to create, make sure that we're keeping a really coherent and like cohesive experience for people. So you're not like, because what gets hard is that when you have a lot of these things in flight, understanding for every single employee, like what the different interaction effects are, or if you're in like this test group, but this, it just gets complicated. So when we build products, we try to make them available to as many people as possible really like early, because we want to like, want people to have that experience, unless there's a good reason to like do a slower rollout. Usually it has to do with infrastructure. Like we just can't have that many people go through like the servers on day one. Yeah. Um, but it does require that conversation early on. And I think over time it's meant that things that were in our heads, like implicit things, are now we try to write them down more. Like, what are our principles around experimentation? What are our principles around product design? Because um, that's, I think, the only way you can scale when you just hire that many people. So, did you just say that when Facebook bought you with 13 employees? Yeah. And they bought you for a billion dollars. So that's each employee is worth a little under 100 million dollars. Like, that's pretty good. Did you ever stop and think this is nuts? It's. I mean, I love the question today, which is like. Instagram, like what would happen if you waited? It's like, it's, I think it's like a quantum theory thing where like you, like you can't have today without that early sale as well. Like I think that actually kicked off a lot of the uh, like mergers and acquisition activity in general. Um, yeah, I mean, again, nowadays people are like, that was, I think the, I think the common perception is like, that was a really good acquisition by Facebook. It really worked out. At the time though, if you rewind and read the articles, it was like, Zuckerberg is crazy, like they crazy overpaid, this thing is gone in a year, like flash in a pan, it's just like fancy filters. So like, I guess hindsight's 2020. Um, but yeah, at the time it was like, wow, this is nuts. And like the pressure was on as well to like live up to that. I mean, it seemed crazy. It was twice as high as a series A round you'd raised like that morning. Yeah. I mean, like, <laughs> but obviously it worked out well for Facebook. Let's talk a little bit about the big issue that's in the news right now, which is um, Apple versus the FBI. And obviously, you're, you know, you're not involved in this particularly. Facebook has filed, a, filed an amicus brief in support of Apple's position. But what is your philosophy when dealing with law enforcement? Let's say law enforcement comes to you and says, um, there's somebody who's committed a crime. We have reason to believe that Instagram pieces he's deleted will help us solve the crime. Will you, you know, if served a valid subpoena, will you give that information up? Yeah, we do. And I believe in working with the law enforcement, I guess community is a weird word for that, but law, like the law enforcement process. And this is one thing that, it was actually really cool to see what this looked like at scale because Facebook gets, you can imagine like Instagram photos sometimes contain things that are relevant in these cases. Facebook very often does, right? Um, and to do that, you can't just have your one community manager, which was by the way, our process, like taking a subpoena, manually run a report, it just doesn't work that way, right? So having to scale that up actually was a good thing because little did we know, I guess maybe we could have predicted this, is that from that time when we joined Facebook where we had about 30 million uh, monthly active users to today where you have 400 million, like that 
order of magnitude also comes with an order of magnitude, like greater interest and like inbound subpoenas and everything. So we've had to like create the right structure there. But yeah, we'll, we'll cooperate whenever it's What won't you do? What won't we do? I think if they don't have, like the, the thing we make sure is that the request is sort of reasonably scoped and not just like this person, everyone they ever interacted with and all their photos, right? So like that's one requirement is that as it's served that it is like scoped and relevant and not unnecessarily or sort of wide. And have you ever been in a situation like Apple is now where you have been asked to write new code to help law enforcement find something? That hasn't come up for us. Um, and I think like part of it is the difference between running on an operating system versus being the operating right. system and being <laughs> kind of like the thing that's, that's locked in there. But, um, but like encryption is definitely something we've invested in. We're now like encrypted and like we have encrypted connections for everybody. Which and is and what is your thing. philosophy towards photographs posted uh, in support of say ISIS? Is that a free speech issue? People should be allowed to post what they want to post or where do you draw the line? Where do you start deleting photographs? Yeah, so terrorist organizations, if reported, will actually prioritize them because we take those really seriously and we'll take them down. So um, again, like the little things you don't think of when you're, if you guys <laughs> in a room and in like on a pier in San Francisco and like come, <laughs> come up and become a reality when, when, when you're reaching a global community. But yeah, that's another one where, um, you know, Facebook and we share like a sort of set of like terrorist organizations that we just will not allow on on Instagram, on Facebook, and if reported, we'll go take down. It's impossible for us to sort of proactively identify it. I mean, machine learning is getting pretty good at beating uh, humans at Go, but it's not necessarily good at always identifying things with accuracy. So we rely on user reports, and then we'll have a human reviewer review it. So user reports say, this is ISIS, this is ISIS. A human looks at it, says, OK, take this down, take this down. Yeah. Have you been banned or censored in um, other countries? Um, it goes in and out. So I think you know, in most countries, it's been fine. And, and I think there's maybe a difference between a like, purely or primarily textual platform being used for yeah. uh, like speech um, and images, um, although there are countries that you know, will, not be, will not allow Instagram. And uh, it's always a, I would love to have as many people be able to use Instagram as possible. So let's, let's talk a little bit about big issues of Instagram and the world. So how do you think Instagram has changed the world? If Instagram didn't exist and there was no service just like it, how would we interact with each other in different ways? I think something would have emerged. I think there's a, there's a desire for people to tell their story. Um, I think like the oldest way of doing that was like literally cave paintings, right? You're like telling a story to communicate in some way. And we went into the written word, which is also really valuable. But I think what Instagram does and other services that are kind of in that vein, but like there's something so immediate and visceral, I think about seeing, especially a video. I think videos really bring you into the moment. Uh, and I think that's what it's changed is that it's at its best. I think it helps people feel like they can bring other people into that moment and almost elevate that moment that they're experiencing right then without having to like have a FaceTime call with every single person, for example. Does it ever worry you that it takes people out of the moment too much because they're thinking about what filter they should use when they take this picture of their child instead of thinking about, say, the child? We have a metric. Um, it's funny, like the metrics that you define and like what they represent about your company values. And one of ours is like minimizing the time in the camera upload process. Like that's actually a thing we track uh -huh. and measure. And like if that's going up, it means people are like by definition spending less time out, you know, interacting right. with people. Um, so we we do, we do try and say like, all right, like here's a really simple example of something we did. The filter icons used to be blurred because we thought it looked aesthetically nicer. And one of our engineers was like, look, I really want to test not blurring them because it's actually really hard to see what photo is like, what it's going to look like. We're like, OK, let's test it. And 
the only metric that it moved was the time spent in the camera. And we're like, that's actually worthwhile. It means people are getting their tasks done faster and like, again, putting their phone back into their pocket. One of the other things we invested in early is like helping build confidence. Like if you hit that done button to send Instagram, you can like lock your phone, put it in your pocket, and we will do our best to get it up on Instagram. Uh, again, we don't want people sitting there going like, oh, is it going to finish? Is it, okay, now it's done. I can like resume my life. So the, the object of the product and the product design is to get you back into your life. Yeah, at least the production side of things. And the consumption side, I feel like, fill, fills in gaps like you might have waiting for the bus or the metro, and you have a few minutes, and that's a way of like being inspired by something out in the world. Mm -hmm. Are there things you want Instagram to do, things, um, ways you want to change the way humans communicate that you can't do yet, problems you haven't solved? Ooh. The things I've started getting really excited about, and like, if we had infinite resources, I would just give everybody one of these cameras, is we've been playing around with these 360 degrees cameras, and they're super V1 right now. The yeah. price is still like high, they're like $200, which is like, actually that's high, but like a year ago it was a thousand, right? So they're falling. Um, and there's something really crazy, you can see these on Facebook actually right now, and you can pan your phone and you get the 360 degree view of things. Um, and it's powerful, actually my friend Mike was in New York during the like crazy blizzard y'all had mm -hmm. a couple of weeks, months ago, and he just took a walk down the street and it was deserted and I really felt like I was there. So there's some ways in which like, I want the capture sort of abilities that we have out in the world to improve more quickly because again, it's all about helping people feel like they're almost getting teleported into whatever moment people are experiencing. Will there be an Instagram, um, Instagram integration with Oculus and with virtual reality? We've thought about it. Um, we have these hackathons where engineers come up with ideas and one of the ideas that they came up with was like, imagine a house full of your Instagram photos. It's actually really funny to see your photos like <laughs> way bigger than you'd ever would have seen them you know, on your phone. Um, they're, they're, it's kind of a, creates a weird situation. I don't think we would ship exactly that. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting in the long run to figure <laughs> Sounds out. Sounds like a terrible idea. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Like, <laughs> I think the ways it could be interesting are imagine being able to take a lot of perspectives of one event and then being able to like in mm -hmm. virtual reality experience them all. I think the like Instagram feed in VR implemented in the like naive way would be, I agree, pretty awful. Well, who knows? So let me, um, here's something I would love. I mean, you can't do this now, but is there a way to use all the data you have at Instagram to, for example, predict disease outbreaks, to notice that all the photographs in a certain geotagged area of Cameroon are showing a certain thing and it means that Ebola is breaking out? Like, is there a way that Instagram could be used for that kind of social good? Or is it technologically impossible? Is it impossible because of privacy reasons? We've started to look at things that aren't quite as sort of human good ones and are more probably entertainment value ones, which is, yeah. can we use the fact that a lot of Instagram photos are being taken somewhere to highlight that some interesting event is going on? So last year it was like, why are all these photos being taken? Oh, it's Burning Man, right? Like you could uh -huh. you have like these uh, sort of geographical hotspots. Um, so that's one way in which they can do it. I think the shorter term way in which this we can be helpful within that sphere is telling those stories on the ground. So there were Instagram, Mm -hmm. sort of, they weren't Instagram journalists, they were journalists using Instagram in some of these Syrian refugee camps telling the story on the ground. And that was, I think, a way of like bringing that to the court. Sometimes what's interesting with photographs is that you don't necessarily need a million of them to tell that story, but one or two could actually be the 
thing that connects you to that. I think the first time I remember that was at the Boston Marathon bombing, where suddenly there were, and weren't Instagram photographs used to help identify the Yeah, they had, a lot of social media got included in that kind of, that hunt. Yeah, um, a lot of the protests in Baltimore, this photographer named Devin Allen took an Instagram photo and ended up on the cover of Time, which is like, you could never have imagined that five years ago, (laughs) but like now it's, you know, becoming a reality. All right, so another question about the company, right? So there's another rare thing about this, which is you seem to have a very, happy company. You and your co-founder have been working together for six years. You've built this huge product. You've gone through financial negotiations and you don't hate each other. How, how? I can't I mean, stress how at- rare it is. Cause I mean, I like, especially in Silicon Valley, like it is littered with I say corpses, that's really like dark. It's littered with the like- Very unhappy relationships between co-founders of major companies who go through what you've gone through. I think it's two things. One was the week we launched, we didn't leave the office and Kevin ran out of underwear. And if you can like work with somebody for a week who's on this like, same pair of underwear, you're probably doing, you're probably like set for life. But two, like um, we have very complementary skills. Like we come together on product and we spend a lot of time talking about the future of Instagram. He's really excited about the running Instagram part, making sure that we're a sustainable business. Like how do we integrate within Facebook? I'm really excited about the technology side and we come together on products. So having that like Venn diagram has worked nicely. Cause I think where it usually goes wrong is where you have co-CEOs or two people who want the same job. Um, and I think that gets really, really messy. So I think that that's a big part of it. And I think the other part is like fundamentally we're both really committed to treating each other fairly and our company fairly. And I think a lot of like the dark stories come when there's like some ulterior motive or betrayal uh, back then. But I'm really happy that six years in, we're still good friends and it, it works well. Uh, mazel tov. Um, <laughs> uh, these questions are great. Thanks audience. So the audience has handed some great questions. So let's, uh, let's just get rocking with these. Um, as the world of social becomes more fragmented, especially for younger users, how do you work to stay on trend and relevant and even continue to grow? That's a really good question. So I'm 30 now, which is not old, but I'm definitely not 13 anymore. Happy birthday. Um, nor was I 13 when we started Instagram. So um, one of the interesting parts of working on Instagram is we do remain as founders and just as a team, like pretty connected to teen culture. So we'll start hearing things like on fleek, which is my favorite teenage term, which means like things are something that's really cool uh, is on fleek and things like that. And what we realized over time is actually really important to stay connected to that community. So what we'll do, uh, we have somebody, a couple of people full time who are just, they work as like, they interact with that community. They go to VidCon, which is, I encourage everybody to attend this at least once. It's like the teen nexus of everything social in one insane space. It's crazy. Um, and we'll just go and talk to people and like hear what are the trends? What are they seeing? What's in, like what's exciting to them, um, and we built layout, which is a way of building photo collages. And like you can imagine instantiation of that being like pretty lame, uh, but instead I'm really happy with how it came out. And it actually came from like our test for that product is like will teenagers actually enjoy it and use it and not think it's super lame. And one of the findings was, for example, the word collage, super lame. It reminded me of like the like collage store you would like make cutouts and stuff. They're like not that. Layout was a better word. So like we do a lot of of just interacting and bringing them in uh, to the office and talking to them. Cause ultimately like, we're not going to be able to guess. And in fact, if we tried too hard to guess, we'll be like, spec- nothing is lamer than somebody trying to sound cool as a teen and like just totally missing the mark. Um, so I think it's about having the empathy to, and, and sort of humility of realizing that we're not going to know unless we actually go out and talk to folks. That sounds smart to me. How do you feel about people who are famous because of Instagram? Not including yourself. <laughs> I mean, it's generally really cool, I would say, like seeing people 
there's a couple of categories. There's businesses that have like started and grown because of Instagram. And I think that that's pretty incredible that somebody's like business has grown because like they were able to bring people in. There's a quilt maker from Texas. They're at Folk Fibers and like they've grown an entire like presence on Instagram just because they take amazing photography of their amazing work. So like you also have to have a good thing that you're building, right? Um, and then there's also just like people who are great uh, storytellers and somehow got into it. But I think it's really interesting. And like, we love having those people by the office. Like, he's not famous necessarily, but there's a photographer who works or worked for the Associated Press called uh, David Guttenfelder. And he was famous because he got to go to North Korea and take Instagram photos there. And like, the fact that we created that opportunity, I think is super interesting. Well, that leads very nicely into this next question, which is which accounts should we follow that are under the radar besides at Mikey K? All right. Oh, that's a good question. Um, if you go to my like explore feed, it's all Bernese mountain dogs, unfortunately, because I have one and I'm obsessed with them. Uh, but uh, the, there's this whole set of accounts I really love, and they're called the everyday accounts. So uh, if you go to everyday D DPRK, uh, there's everyday Africa, uh, everyday, like if you just search everyday, our autocomplete should hopefully show you as many of those as possible. And what they are is that they're collaborative accounts, which is like a different use case than we would have imagined early on. Um, and for example, everyday DPARK is just people who have access to the internet in North Korea, snapping photographs of everyday life there. And there's like this like breaking of a kind of like metaphorical wall where you can just see what daily life is there. And all of it's both normalcy and total difference, right? It's like, oh, they also do this very similar routine, but then they're in this like enormous soccer stadium. And so like that, I love those accounts. Um, and then for sheer weirdness, I can't not mention Breadface blog. Breadface blog, yes. Which is a girl who just smashes her, she's in New York, so she's out there, maybe here in the audience she here. Uh, and uh, just buys an, like, uh, an immense variety of bread and smashes her face into it. And that's, that's all that there is to it, but highly encourage you to follow Breadface blog too. Um, what's next for Search and Explore? Ooh. Um, We've learned, so Search and Explore is the second tab in the app. It used to be like pretty crappy version of just most popular things on Instagram. We started personalizing it and we've learned that people spend almost 50% more time on there if we personalize it. So what we're working on and I'm really excited about is getting even better about showing you like photos and videos especially that are really great for you. So you'll see these over time. Like if you go to Search and Explore now, uh, we have uh, things that we curate that are like, great skiers, like maybe there's the Winter Olympics coming up. Um, but we we're also starting to do things that are more tailored to you. And we're still getting it right. Like, you know, I don't know if you all use Spotify, but I feel like the, their playlist is great because maybe 50 songs, like 10 are great, but those 10 are like, could become your next favorite band. Like we're trying to get better at those recommendations. But personalization is like the thing we are focused on there. This question is a little dark, but do you fear that any new idea or undertaking might not surpass or even amount to the achievements you've had with Instagram? That's a wait, right? Uh, I mean, this was funny. It's a, it's a good problem to have, but. I was trying to hire something somebody said. I was trying to hire somebody really senior and like to join the team. And uh, he's like, well, like, what are you working on next? And I gave him a rundown. This was before we'd done a lot of the work we'd done last year. We hadn't relaunched direct. We hadn't done Search and Explore. Uh, and he's like, okay, that all sounds great. But like, what if you were all just lucky the first time? Like, why do you think you're the right yeah. team to continue to build this? And I don't think you can ever fully know, but I think what, growing the team has forced us to do is as best we can like codify the principles that underlie why and how we built Instagram and hopefully those those seem like they that DNA created Instagram and hopefully we'll create other interesting products and uh, but yeah that's always the 
second album syndrome, right? It's always like the one that you put all your energy into and it came out. And uh, I think the best artists like continue to evolve versus trying to do the same thing over and over again. And hopefully but, we But can, how long uh, are you going to stay at Instagram? As long as it's fun, I think. Like it's an, I, I get a new job every year, which is what's exciting to me. Like I was doing the keep the site up like crazy. Then it was the, okay, now the site's up. What do we do on product? Now it's how do you run an engineering team of 150 people? And that's a completely different job. So it sounds a lot less fun than the first couple jobs, but hey. <laughs> it's just really different. It makes you focus way more on like replicating culture and like getting people to all understand. It doesn't mean people shall think like you, but at least like understand how you thought about problems and then disagree in their own ways. And like, I don't know, I think if I was doing the coding thing, still it would be boring because it would be the same thing every time. Well, that gets us to a good next question, which is what do you know now about founding a startup that you wish you knew back then? I kind of worry if we'd known any more, we would have screwed it up. Like, like <laughs> the like the fact that the site fell over on day one was because we hadn't done the probably like month plus of infrastructure investment we should have made before launching, and we didn't do it because we didn't know better. And I think if we knew better, we would have delayed launch by a month because it would be like, well, it has to be perfectly scalable and it has to like check off all these boxes. So I think our ignorance was really powerful back then. Um, I would have way overvalued relative to how much we did value the importance of bringing people on early or like starting to think about it because um, like I like to say like hiring isn't a faucet like it's not like you turn a faucet and all of a sudden like engineers come flying out like it's a huge like it's a long-term pipeline investment where you know we would contact people and then six months later they're like you know what I wasn't ready to leave my job when you asked me but now I'm like ready to take the leap and mm -hmm. if you haven't done that six months ago today you're screwed so right. we were underwater because it's, I call it the recruiting like cycle of death where you're really busy so you don't spend time recruiting which means that you just get busier and you spend less time and um, we really fell into that so like if I ever do a startup again I think building out a better like a building the team out more quickly once it was apparent that this thing was actually growing and had legs. Is it harder to hire engineers now? I mean, when you're, before you've been acquired, you have options, you have, um, you have a whole bunch of things that you can offer young, intelligent people. But if you're a 23-year-old Stanford graduate, you probably want to start your own thing or work for a place where you can get options and get super rich. It has changed a lot. So we still get that profile if they're just really excited about the Instagram product and like that, that right. ends up being the first thing on their calculation. But then you also get people that are like, Hey, like I've just had two kids, and like I don't want to like take a crazy swing at the fences that could leave me with like nothing but my small salary and like these now worthless paper options. So it shifts a little bit. It's actually really nice to be part of like a company that is like has the I think the stability that Facebook has had. As somebody with three kids, I am delighted that you are hiring lots of people with lots of children. Um, how do you get past the feeling of needing the product to be perfect? Did you ever have the feeling that the product had to be perfect? Yeah, I, like the, there's a lot of like Silicon Valley-isms, and one of them is like, if you're proud of what you shipped, if you're not embarrassed with what you shipped, you waited too long or you took too much time to prepare. <laughs> I don't really believe in that. Like, uh, I think there is value in craft, and one thing at Instagram is like, the way we reconcile this, because we actually, like, I, I, we talk a lot about our values internally, and there's three of them that I think fit together really well. One is do the simple thing first, right, which is like, don't create this like mega complicated product that solves every use case ever, like solve one problem really well. But then we also talk about craft and like a lot of the design details that are what make Instagram, Instagram. And so our, the way of reconciling those two is do fewer things better. It's like, don't try to build everything, but with the things you do build, like go deep and do that. And it's never perfect. And there's things that we know were not quite right in the first version, but like it's also, you learn so much the first day something's out in the world. You're like, ah, we screwed up this thing and we hadn't thought about this use case. And um, so 
I do try to bias the team towards getting things out. All right, so do fewer things better. That's that's a good slogan for life. You know, I'll put that on my LinkedIn page later. Is that, it's how you run your company. Is that how you live? Is it something your mother taught you? Is it something, where did this come from? That's a really good question. I think it's not a like deep philosophical origin. It's more just coming from understand like I think it's it's the natural outcome of like wanting things oh you know what here's a great phrase like the web framework we use which like basically a piece of the component that Instagram is built upon is called Django and their slogan I think is perfect which is it's the web framework for perfectionists with deadlines which uh -huh. is like kind of like perfect it's like you want to make it as perfect as possible but you do have to get it out so I don't think it was something I necessarily grew up with and more so just like the natural outcome of like, we need to get this out, but we also want to be really proud of what we But the we fewer did. things better was there from day one, and it seems pretty prominent right now. Yeah. You don't think it was hardwired? Like when you were a college student, were you, did you switch your major a whole bunch of times and were you scatterbrained or did you sort of show up and you knew you were going to major in X and you Yeah, no, I showed up and I knew I wanted to major, I majored in this uh, major they have at Stanford called Symbolic Systems. It's a mixture of cognitive science and computer science. So like how the brain works and how computers work and all the fun space in between. Um, I basically knew what I was doing like the day I walked into campus. So maybe that's an example of like- Do you like, file all your papers on time when you were young? I, was, I think I was pretty good. Is yeah. your room neat? My room is not neat. That was, <laughs> but I think that's normal. Yeah, I, th yeah, I think there is like a, a value, and this is I think a way in which Kevin and I kind of balance each other. There was a moment where we were like, there were actually two things that were interesting for us about bourbon. One was the photos piece. The other one was making plans with your friends. Um, and my first inclination was like, Kevin, why don't we each work on this, these ideas? One of us picks one, and we'll like work two weeks and then pitch each other on the thing that we had built. And he's like. No, like let's focus on one thing and then do it well. And then if we're wrong, then we can move on to the other one. So maybe something I got more from Kevin. So tell me, you grew up in Brazil. You didn't grow up in this country. What did you learn from growing up in Brazil and your, your, your childhood that has helped you figure out things today? Besides that, you needed you had a trouble getting an H-1B visa, right? Yeah, you so- You convince the government that you could earn a salary? This was like the first challenge was like, I'm like, I'm ready to join Kevin and do this startup adventure. By the and way, at the debate the other night, the, we, everybody agreed that we should shut down the visa program on which this gentleman from, yeah, built so. Instagram. For the record, um, so if you don't like Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And uh, you know, the, the interesting part was like applying for that, for that work visa, because one of the criteria is that the company that is, you're going to be working at needs to be able to pay your salary. And so we had to just go through this whole process of like showing our financing documents. And then they were like, okay, we got your financing documents. Can we show you, can you show us your business plan? And we're like, uh, okay. And so uh, I spent a weekend writing a business plan because, I mean, at least in the early stages right now of, of raising money, it's very rare. It's very business schooly. It doesn't really happen in the real world that like you have a business plan. You usually have even like a have product. a business plan now, yeah. six years in, right? Yeah. I mean, now it's you've yeah. just got a couple ads on the site. Yeah. Now we've like rolled out <laughs> monetization, but it's just interesting, like how you know the the process that the the immigration sort of office had and like the realities of building a startup ended up being pretty different. But the good news is that ended up working out. It just took a couple months longer than I think we would have liked. Um, but the Brazil question, it was super helpful to have a home base that I could go back to every year and realize like the ways in which Instagram was used the same, the ways in which Instagram was used really differently. And also like for all the improvements in cell phone networking here, Brazil is like all over the place so you can go and try to use your phone there and like Instagram that little like gray bar just gets stuck and so every time I come back I'm like here's all the ways in which we need to make Instagram work better 
on things that aren't fancy Wi-Fi or fancy uh, LTE connections. And we find in Brazil, most Instagram usage is actually on Wi-Fi, which totally resonates with my experience when I'm home because you, it's very difficult to use it. All right. About. We have three minutes and three questions. All right, lightning round. Can you tell, here, easy question. Can you tell us more about Instagram's evolution into a media company? A media company? Are you a media company? I don't know if we're a media company in the, like, New Yorker. Is the New Yorker a media company? Like, I, I feel like a... Condé Nast's a media company. company. We're on Instagram. I think the closest thing we have that... Of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the, the 90 degree turn on that question. But like, one thing that we tried not to define ourselves as early was a photo company. It's like we knew early on that we would want to do videos and then whatever other formats made sense. It's just simple thing first, like trying to do both at once was really complicated. So video we did in 2013 and it was... I mean, I can't imagine Instagram without videos now. And like a lot of our like iconic things that have come out in the last year were, were all video moments. So that was a moment where like we've got to shift it. And anytime we try to do those transitions, we try to bring our community along. Like it's not like, boom, like this is it and like go figure it out community. It's like we try to, for example, with video, we actually got some of our favorite Instagrammers to shoot Instagram videos first to show them how it worked. And then we use their videos as the way to tell the story about what we were releasing. Which Instagram user has surprised you with the most number of followers? Oh, actually, the person we were talking about earlier. So the president of Chechnya, <laughs> there's, a, there's a really good New Yorker article about uh, him and, and partially about his Instagram account. He has one point, we just saw 1.7 1. 1. 7 million, million followers. followers. And that was a, uh, his account is just like a glimpse into the life of being the Chech Chechen president. His so, most recent post has him holding a must-be-sedated lion cub. Um, Sounds about right. Yeah. So yeah, that one. That was, was when I looked. I was like, wow, that's a lot of followers. <laughs> um, what is the biggest challenge facing innovators today? And let's add, what is the biggest challenge facing Instagram today? You have one minute. One minute. It is a lot harder to get something noticed today. I think people are always like, what was your strategy? What was your go-to-market? What was your publicity strategy? People, were, I think, have shifted a bit, and they're not as like app crazy these days. Remember like the days when you would like come up with your friends and they'd be like, hey, like what apps have you gotten recently? I don't know if everybody had this experience. I had this experience where like a lot of my friends were really excited to try uh, different apps. And I feel like we've gotten a little bit of app exhaustion maybe. Um, so it's a lot harder for something new to get noticed. So I think that is like on a purely like marketing and distribution sense, it's a lot more difficult than it was. I think we'd like if we built Instagram today, the odds of it actually getting noticed would be very small, um, which I think is a, an interesting new challenge. Um, and for Instagram, it's like, at 300 people, how do you get everybody to row together in the same direction? Like, how do you like keep things moving quickly? Because I don't think we are 50 times more productive than we were at six people. Like, we're definitely not. So, how do we keep ourselves from being like at least as productive as we can be? And I think part of that is not having everything funnel through me and Kevin, which is hard to let go of some of that control. Uh, but that's what we're working on: is like defining the problem and then letting teams run with it. But it's it's your baby. It's hard to let go of that. All right, that was Mike Krieger. Um, that was fantastic. I learned a ton. I love talking with you. Thanks for answering all the questions. Thank you, audience, for those wonderful questions. And thank you, 92nd Street Y, for hosting this, this great series. Thanks for listening. 92Y Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92yondemand.org.